Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by author and journalist Gordon Carrera, and we discuss his new book, Russians Among Us. If you're enjoying this show, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber. If you go to patreon.com forward slash drycleanercast, you'll get access to new exclusive episodes just for Patreon subscribers. You'll also get early access to our interviews. And if you subscribe at over $15 a month, you'll also get a copy of the film The Dry Cleaner. Also, if you like the show, please leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast app. Every positive review or every review helps us gain more listeners. Also, if you like this podcast, you may enjoy my short film, The Dry Cleaner. The Dry Cleaner is my first attempt at spy fiction, and it is now available on iTunes and Amazon. All you need to do is type in The Dry Cleaner Film to iTunes or Amazon, and you'll see the film come up. I think it comes in about $1.99. If you become a Patreon subscriber at over $15, you will get a copy of that film included with your subscription. So, you have the choice there. And without further ado, let's get on with the episode. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this one. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Gordon, welcome to The Dry Cleaner cast. Thank you very much for having me on. Oh, it's great to have you on. Thank you. So for those who are unfamiliar with you and your work, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? So um, I am a journalist and a writer. I'm a security correspondent for the BBC. I've been doing that for BBC News for about 15, 16 years. I've even lost count and kind of covering um, security relation issues, I suppose, even longer since really 9-11. Um, uh, and then I also write books on intelligence and security issues. Um, I think, uh, you know, I've written a handful from AQ Khan and nuclear proliferation, MI6, intercept on cyber spies, one on the second world war and the secret pigeon service and, um, Russian intelligence most recently. Yes. Very topical. What is it, what is it that led to your interest in espionage? So no background in working in it. People sometimes kind of ask you or assume that somehow yeah. you you might have worked in it and I didn't <laughs> actually I um I came in it with an interest in the US and I studied and lived in the US I studied about US history and kind of lived in the US for a couple of years and actually joined the BBC as a first a researcher on American politics yeah um and then as a kind of reporter for the Today program covering particularly the US and then that 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 was the job I was doing when 9/11 happened and I suppose being interested in the US and covering the US in that 9-11 era just took me into security. Um, and I kind of stayed in it since because it's a kind of fascinating area, really. And just with an interest in history as well, I kind of studied history. I love um, exploring the history side of some of these issues as well. Yeah, it's, I find it quite a highly addictive subject. Once you've got to get stuck into it, just yeah. there's always something that's like, oh, wow. You know? <laughs> 
<laughs> Lots of threads to pull at and, and areas to explore. Yeah, definitely. 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 Well, look, you, you've written this fantastic new book called Russians Among Us, and I wanted to have a chat with you today about the the Russian intelligence services illegal program, which creates mm. these sort of sleeper spies popularised in shows like The Americans or the movie Salt. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about what the illegals program is and sort of how it works and how it began? Yeah, so illegal is a kind of funny term. Uh, in Russian terminology, what it means is a, a spy in contrast to a legal spy, who is one who's working under diplomatic cover in an embassy. Um, so that would be in, in their thinking a legal spy. But for, but for the Russians, they would call those not having diplomatic cover illegals. Yeah. Now, it's something they kind of learned to do um, very early on. I mean, after the start of the Soviet Union, when lots of countries didn't have diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union because it was this communist power. And so they realized they would have to use illegals or people under different cover much more. And also at that period in the kind of early, early years, they had this, uh, well, a kind of global network or at least an international network of people who were sympathetic to communism from other countries as well. So um, who, who were able to work um, with the Soviet Union uh, and its intelligence services abroad. And so that was the kind of, if you like, the reason why the Soviet Union and Russia has had a particular focus on illegals. So lots of other countries use similar techniques. So the US and UK have what would be called by the CIA and MI6 natural cover or non-official cover, which might be someone opposing as a businessman or some, mm. something like that. So, uh, but first of all, Russia has always done it more. And secondly, it takes it to another level with the illegals program, which is not just having, say, um, a Russian businessman go to the West, but still look Russian, but actually changing their nationality. So they will take on a whole new identity and train them to have a new nationality. So they will turn someone from being Russian to being Canadian or American. And they will train them to take on a whole new nationality, a whole new identity, often taking the identity of a child that died young in the West and then building an identity around them and then implanting those people for very long term uh, penetration. It's not the only way they do it, but they will potentially put people in the illegals program into the West for decades and they will spend years building their cover and working up their cover before they even really do much operationally. So it's a it, it, it's a fascinating program, which is also really the kind of pride of of Soviet and then Russian intelligence. They invest huge importance in their illegals as a tool of infiltrating and and, and getting undercover in in foreign countries, especially the West, but not just the West. Yeah, and so this illegal program. So basically, there's these schools or were schools in Russia that are literally teaching people how to become American, Brazilian, or uh, Estonian, or whatever. Yeah, although in, it, it, they they would train them for years mm. to do this. Interestingly enough, they wouldn't normally do most of it in big schools because actually it's a very individual process. You, it's almost one to one, or maybe two to one, or one to two, something very small mm. to be able to to take someone and train them in their new nationality. Also, obviously, the smaller you do it, the easier it is to protect um, their cover and their true identity. Uh, and they would often use defectors or people who had formerly been illegals to basically teach you, well, what's it like to live in London? So, you know, it, it's not just learning a language and learning it at the level where you can think, dream, 
um, um, you know, swear if you're taken by surprise in the other language, but actually understand how that country lives its life as if you were one of its citizens. How do you pay the bills? How do you how, how do you act in a cafe? All those kind of cultural things they had to teach the illegals to try and make them uh, fit in when they go to the West. So it's an incredibly intensive program. So you couldn't do it on a, a mass scale. I mean, a former head of the KGB said it was a a, a, a piecemeal operation, but one that they um, invested very heavily in. Yeah, no. So can you you mentioned a little bit before about um, the way the illegals have built their identities. Can you just tell us a bit more about that and also how illegals sort of insert themselves into their target country? Well, there, there are different ways. I, I think the, the classic way we think of is what, what, what they would call using a dead double. Mm. So you would have a KGB officer in the Cold War who would often look, one of their tasks for a KGB officer, say from an embassy, uh, would be to look for um, deaths, and often deaths of children. They would actually do this process called tombstoning, because it was sometimes involved literally walking around the tombstones of the cemetery and looking for a child that had died early on. And then you would see if you could take that identity, request potentially a birth certificate, uh, and then use that for someone who would, 15 years later, would be of a similar age, you know, maybe 18 or 20 in Russia, and say, right, this you're going to take this identity. So an example I take is Donald Heathfield, who died, was a child who died um, in the early 60s in Canada, and his identity was stolen and given to Andrei Bezrukov, uh, a KGB recruit who was recruited at university as a kind of as a student in Tomsk. And then they built that cover for him and his wife, um, took the, the name of, a, of, a, of another child who died in Canada, Anne Foley, Tracy Ann Foley. Um, his, her real name was Elena Babalova. And, the, and this couple, who were recruited as a couple um, while they were at university in Tomsk, were given the names of these two um, Canadian children. And then they built, they would build cover based firstly normally on a birth certificate, and then use that as a stepping stone to get more documentation. And then eventually you would send the couple back into Canada to live under this, um, uh, 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 under their new cover, build up more cover, more identity, get jobs, build a life. And then, and then they went to Paris after about five years. And then only after 10 years of, uh, uh, of deployment in Canada and France did they actually end up in their main target which was the United States. So that was about 15 years after they'd originally been recruited did they end up in the United States. That gives you some idea about the, the patience and the investment that, uh, that Moscow was willing to put into these illegals. Yeah, no, it's insane, isn't it? I mean, and, like, and, this is, and so these people are completely kind of cut off from their families and their life in Russia, aren't they? They can't really ever go back. Well, it, it, they had cover stories to tell their parents about where they'd gone. I think they said they were translators and they'd gone to Australia, so yeah. somewhere far away. There would be the occasional message that they could send back in code to their families, which the KGB and then the SVR would translate and maybe pretend was from somewhere else. But their families certainly didn't know. You know, there would be very occasional meetings for for where you could perhaps maintain your cover, but pretty much cut off. And it's one of the interesting things that they say is that the you know, the, the cost of being an illegal is pretty high, particularly not necessarily for yourself in the obvious way, because, you know, there's the excitement of doing it, but actually for the generation above your parents, who basically you disappear from, and potentially your children, the, the generation below. They said those are the people 
who pay the cost for the life of an illegal um, in doing it. So it's certainly a, a, a life which involved sacrifices. Um, but for these people, it was the, you know, the, the excitement of, of, of becoming a spy and, and, and also living in the West, which was, you know, it's an interesting aspect of the illegals program is that, you know, you sometimes ask, well, what, what, you can see the attraction if you're Russian of thinking, well, they're going to go let us live in a, a, an interesting lifestyle in the West and be a spy. Mm. You can imagine why it would be quite hard to do it the other way and say to a, you know, a young CIA or MI6 officer, we're going to make you live in Russia or the Soviet Union for 20 or 30 years, yeah. you know, in Vladivostok or somewhere, perhaps wouldn't be quite so attractive as, as, the, as the other way around. Yeah. And it presents a challenge as well, because um, some of these illegals, they actually became parents themselves and bringing up children in the target country and that culture. That must have created quite a, a quite a challenge and a, an interesting problem for them. I think that the children is, is one of the things that fascinates people the most and mm. certainly fascinated me, which is how uh, if, if you if you listen to the illegals, they will talk about the the pressure of, of of the decision to have children, because you know you are bringing them into into a lie, into in, 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 you're you're bringing children into the world who will be li- living a lie effectively. I mean, there was even the moment of childbirth was considered one of high risk because actually, um, uh, in a famous drama about illegals in in in, um, in, in the Soviet Union. Um, the the act of childbirth is what gives away one illegal because she cries out in pain in childbirth, of course, cries out in Russian. Um, And so they actually worried about this, the real illegals, about how to make sure they didn't didn't cry out in Russian during childbirth and took precautions about that. But then beyond that was this issue of you are going to bring up your children as American or Canadian. And uh, going back to Bezrukov and Vavilov, uh, Heathfield and Foley, they kind of made the decision they were going to have children. They had two sons, Alex and Tim. And interestingly enough, they brought them up internationally. So they sent them to a kind of international school and they tried to make them a travel a lot. And it was clearly one of the things they were trying to do was not have them turn into Americans too much. You know, they wanted to keep that bit of distance so the children would never emotionally entirely become Americans. And therefore, if and when they found out about their parents, the shock wouldn't be as great as it could be. But still, certainly, you know, for, for you know, in the case of another illegal family, the Murphys, you know, their their daughter, you know, turns up one Sunday night back from a pool party, mm. and her parents, who she thinks Americans, she discovers a Russian spy. I mean, it's yeah. crazy, you know, crazy for the kid. Yeah, no, I imagine it'd be mind blowing. Really, I, I, just, I can't yeah. imagine it. It's crazy. I mean, there's a obviously the TV show The Americans is a really good example mm. of that. And there's even a film from the 80s with River Phoenix. I think it's called Little Nikita, with Sidney Poitier as an FBI agent who uh, exposes his parents' uh, sleepers in um, in America. It's quite a yeah, it's mm. quite good fiction on it, but uh, it is pretty mind blowing. I mean, The Americans, I think, is a really actually a really interesting series. Now, of course, mm. it's not 100 percent realistic. Mm. No TV drama is, and there's you know, there's a lot more um, kind of, you know, wigs and killing and things like that in it. But I think it captures some of the human um, dynamics, tensions, issues of being an illegal really well. And, and you know, funnily enough, the, the, um, the, the Russian illegals actually, you know, about whom it's based, uh, well, loosely based, I suppose, inspired by, you know, um, Heathfield and Foley actually quite liked the series and thought it was 
quite impressed it with the FBI people I spoke to who'd investigated them couldn't watch it. They found it, you know, they, 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 they just, they just couldn't deal with the dramatization of it. Yeah. No, but actually the interesting thing in the Americas was that tension between the husband and wife, because um, mm. the wife's more ideological, I think, than the husband. He's sort of slowly go, growing to like American culture while she's sort of slowly going the other way, isn't she? <laughs> yeah. And I think that's one of the interesting tensions in the illegal program mm. is that they always worried about that. They always worried. What if you, quite literally go native when you've been sent to the West. You know, what if you just like it a little bit too much and you decide to stay? And, you know, one of the families, the Murphys, get told off by, you know, the SVR, Russian intelligence, for buying a house or wanting to buy a house because they're told, no, no, hang on a sec. We think you're maybe buying into the American ideal, the suburban ideal of home ownership a bit too much, <laughs> you know. And so there was always this tension about, you know, how much do you buy into, if you spend your life immersed in the West, do you buy into the values of it? How do you, you know, and the Russians always worried about that. And then clearly, obviously, within a marriage, you could have different positions. So again, I think the American uh, TV series was really interesting in kind of exploring you know, one of the real issues for illegals. Yeah. With with the illegals, because obviously it's the long game with them, so what was their sort of primary mission? What were they trying to achieve? Well, in simple terms, I mean, illegals, so it's worth saying there are different types of illegals mm. and uh, they can be used in different ways. And so sometimes they've been used to run agents. Sometimes um, the, the Russians had or the Soviet Union had stay behind illegals who were basically there to carry out sabotage in the event of war. So there were different types um, but the SBR illegals, KGB illegals, the ones I've kind of focused on mainly in the book, are are primarily there to um, talent spot and target influential people. So they're there to burrow deep into American society and to look for and spot people who have influence and power and access to secrets. Not always, not always access to secrets. Often they were interested in people who understood power and influence rather than if you like the classic sense of a you know of a secret but they were looking for those people uh they were given short-term intelligence tasks as well you know report back on you know what's president obama's policy on russia is going to be or who's going to win this election or things like that but more often it was talent spotting it was looking for people and collecting information on people who the svr might then be able to target and recruit as spies now um you know, it's an interesting question. How damaging can that be? Well, you know, the, the, the interesting question is some people say, well, you know, what could it have done? But you, if you run these kind of networks correctly, the example I always take is think about the illegals in the 1930s in Britain who recruited a couple of students fresh out of Cambridge. Now, those students fresh out of Cambridge didn't necessarily they, they didn't have any access to secrets when they were recruited. But Kim Philby, you know, in 1934, he's just fresh back as a student. He'd been in Austria. He's recruited by illegals and run by them. And, you know, a decade later, he's at the heart of MI6 and ends up, you know, in an incredibly important position at the start of the Cold War. Uh, so if you, as an illegal, can find people, help the Russian intelligence service recruit them, especially if you recruit the right people at the right stage, you never know where they end up or what damage they could do. Yeah. Well, one one thing that 
cropped out when I was reading your book, um, and I hope I remember it correctly, Cynthia Murphy, Murphy went to Columbia University and then there was this, a recruitment fair and the CIA had a stall there and she was taking down the names of all the students who went to the CIA stall at the careers fair and then sent that back to Moscow. That's amazing. I know. It's, I mean, you can't find an easier way of doing it. But, you know, she's there as a kind of business student, a graduate student. There's a job fair. The CIA have a stall. People sign their names up if they're interested in working with the CIA. She writes down the names, gives them to Moscow. Now, you know, it, it, it sounds absurdly easy, but actually it matters because suddenly you can imagine there's 20 names there. They end up in a file in Moscow. Moscow knows those are people interested in joining the CIA. You start to you start to research them if you're in Moscow. You start to say, if any of these got financial problems, or is there something we could get a grip on them through, or you know get a hold on them through? Maybe we could recruit them now or later, and they end up and they end up being a massive penetration of the CIA. That's the kind of potential that you have if you're if you're smart and you're an illegal, and especially if you look for the right kind of people. So. Yeah, I think, you know, there's, uh, there's other evidence they were trying to build up kind of rings at uh, another university at uh, George Washington University um, in D.C. And so you can see the kinds of ways in which they were playing a long game with these illegals. It wasn't always about getting access to some CIA or State Department officer who had secrets now, but playing a much longer game. Yeah, yeah, it's mad. So um, in the 1990s, these were obviously a turbulent time for Russia and the communist government was toppled and Russia was moving sort of towards a more democratic model of government. The Russian intelligence services were then rebranded. Can you talk to us about this time and what happened to the Russian intelligence services during the 90s? Yeah, so I, I think this is a really interesting question. Right? It's mm. one of the reasons I start the book at the moment of the coup, mm. which kind of ended the Soviet Union or began the ending in August 91, because uh, I was trying to, I was interested in understanding how far was their continuity and how far was their change from um, the KGB into what became the SVR. It's the Foreign Intelligence Service of, um, of, the, of Russia, which was the kind of successor to the first chief directorate of the KGB, which did foreign espionage. Um, and the answer is that there were changes, but there was a lot of continuity. And, you know, certainly they went through a turbulent few years, certainly morale dropped, certainly resources dropped um, through the 90s. Um, but, but a kind of a core remained, an ideology remained. And that the ideology wasn't necessarily about communism, actually. I think a good chunk of it was about Russian nationalism, actually, and, 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 and an assertiveness of Russian power against the West, which, if you like, is a thread that that, that continues from the end of the Soviet Union into these years, and a belief that actually it's only spies who can protect the motherland and protect Russia against foreign threats, including the West. And so this this notion keeps going. Some of the personnel keep going, despite all the cuts and the changes. And the, the illegals program certainly keeps going. Some of the illegals themselves, so Heathfield and Foley, are sent out under under communism. They watch the flag of the Soviet Union go down, but they, their view is our allegiance is to our motherland, and that's what we continue to serve. And so they keep going, um, even though the political entity that sent them out is technically gone. And if anything, there's a greater focus on the illegals program when you get into the 1990s, because they realize, actually, um, there's more ways of sending people into the West now. And we're actually going to kind of actually increase the focus on illegals. So um, the, 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 there are changes. 
Um, but there's quite a strong degree of continuity as well, I think, between the KGB and then what becomes the SVR. Yeah. And uh, how did um, how did sort of Western intelligence services react to that time? Because there's, there was a sense, and there still pretty much was until I think um, uh, probably the killing of Litvinenko, that things were changing in Russia for the for a positive thing. And, and the, the KGB obviously being disbanded and the SVR was somehow winding down a bit. So I, again, I think this is a really interesting question because I I, um, I wanted to try and understand that. And what you get a sense of is that uh, in Western policymakers' terms, mm. Russia was way down the agenda. So basically people thought at the end of the Cold War, we've won, <laughs> you know, it's over. Russia will become a liberal democratic state um, there's lots of other things to think about. And they almost forgot about Russia, which also annoyed Russia a bit. Because it kind of wanted to, you know, wanted to still be seen as a great power. And it mm. couldn't kind of dealing with that change it was very hard. Then within the intelligence community, again, Russia dropped down the agenda. Now, if you talk to people who worked in the, in, in the intelligence community at the kind of top levels in, in the 90s, they will say, well, we were interested in Russia primarily for things like the spread of potential spread of weapons of mass destruction, mm. where some of the, you know, where some of the nuclear and biologic and other materials, you know, at risk of moving out. But actually, the rest of the stuff we didn't care about. But then there was this core of people, quite small core within Russia House of the CIA and within MI6, who who actually had a very different view and who were convinced that Russia remained a danger and a threat and were determined to kind of, if you like, keep up the battle. And for lots of reasons, sometimes very personal reasons, sometimes because they knew the Russians had, in the American case, penetrated their intelligence agency, the CIA, they were determined to keep the fight going. And so there was this kind of tension about how far do you, and, and it's right from the late 80s even, but certainly through the 90s, how far do you sit down with the Russians and are they now a liaison partner and do you have meetings with them and work together against drugs and nuclear proliferation or how far do they remain your implacable adversary who you should be targeting and trying to run agents against and find their agents. And that, that was very much the kind of issue in the 90s. And it, was mu- it took a long time for people to kind of go, actually, while the Western intelligence community pushed Russia down the agenda, Russia kept focusing and targeting on the West at the top of its agenda. So it was this kind of mismatch, which I think only in the last few years has the Western intelligence community kind of caught up with and go on, actually, they've seen us as an adversary, and particularly one in the last few years who they're in conflict with, we haven't. We need to kind of adjust the way we think. Yeah. And um, in 1999, former KGB officer and FSB head Vladimir Putin would become the president of Russia. And not long after that, a sort of spy fever kind of began to take hold in Russia. Mm. Can you talk to us about this time and what motivated that kind of spy fever? So I think that uh, Putin personally uses this kind uses spies very um much as part of a tool of statecraft by that what i mean is he 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 turns russian spies into heroes and wants to kind of lionize them including particularly the illegals and of course this is he is a former kgb officer he has a spy's mindset himself about the kind of threats and conspiracies and he wants to demonize enemy spies. Uh, and on the latter, you see from when he becomes head of the FSB um, and from when he becomes prime minister and president, he is um, very focused on the threat of enemy spies stealing Russia's secrets. And he stokes this up, and particularly 
the sense that they have is that in the 1990s, they were on the back foot, they were humiliated, and the CIA and MI6 were all over them, stealing their secrets, um, recruiting people. And it's true that KGB or former KGB officers were literally walking in, offering themselves. And this was a kind of professional humiliation for people like Putin. And they wanted to reverse it. So, so targeting enemy spies and also the traitors who worked for them became a very important and recurring theme in Russia from that point onwards. And I think that is a connection you can take from 1999-2000 when Putin arrives in power through to you know the Skripal poisoning and, and and now as well. Yeah, and um, the the illegals program obviously had a shift because um, you were mentioning earlier about the documentation required to create a false identity, and now with since nine eleven uh, with biometrics and databases that are kind of interlinked now, that's getting much harder. And so um, you mentioned there's a kind of a new kind of illegal where is a yeah. person who's using their actual identity, like Anna Chapman, and then they just go to the target country and uh, and kind of do a similar kind of activity but with a kind of with their own identity now can you tell us a bit about that and and i suppose the drawbacks of that yeah so it's really this is uh, one of the interesting things i kind of looked at in the in the book and it's a kind of pivot point in the middle of the book is the idea that um the russian illegals program changes um and they've had these deep cover illegals who have changed their nationality as well as their identity but that becomes harder. And, and, and an interesting pivot moment is 9-11, 2001. Those attacks um, change a lot of things. I mean, on the one hand, it means uh, counterintelligence in the West drops down the agenda and counterterrorism goes to the top. So there's less focus on Russian spies and less resources from, from places like the MI5 and FBI. But it also poses an interesting challenge for Russian spies and for illegals because one of the things 9-11 does is say how did these terrorists get into the US? How did they carry out their attacks? Why weren't we tracking them? And the answer is they weren't connecting the dots. They weren't good enough databases. Um, travel controls were lax. So suddenly there's a shift towards much more databases, authenticating people's identities, um, looking at people before they travel, understanding who they are. There's a switch generally, which is going on to kind of building databases and, and identifying people, which is post 9-11. At the same time, you have the arrival of biometrics in the 2000s. So, you know, your passport photo is taken, your fingerprints are scanned, which again makes it much harder to assume a different identity and to, to go undercover. You know, the ability to just pick up a passport from a safe and pretend you're a different name, that's much harder in a world of biometrics. And social media eventually will add another layer of that. And so will CCTV and all these things. So all these things make it much more much more difficult to be that kind of old school illegal who completely just transforms their nationality and identity because actually you know births and deaths are now rather than just being on pen and paper in some office somewhere you know in a local registry office in philadelphia or wherever else are now being computerized and centralized still not completely but more so so this poses a, a, a challenge to the illegals program but at the same time they realize there's also an opportunity and that's the fact that the west and russia now have have opened up to each other. Mm. So, of course, in the Cold War, it was very hard for Russians or citizens of the Soviet Union to travel to the West, and those who did would probably get noticed, where suddenly there are movements of people, students, business people, going back and forth. And that offers another form of opportunity. So what you get is a new kind of illegal. Um, the FBI call them true name illegals because, you know, as, as it sounds, they use their true name. 
Um, and, you know, the, the most famous example of that is Anna Chapman, who comes over as Anna Koshenko in um, 2001, marries a, um, a young British man, Alex Chapman, becomes Anna Chapman. So she never hides the fact she was Russian, she is Russian, that she travels to Moscow. Much easier for someone to travel back and forth to Moscow. You don't need to kind of go some complicated route and use different identities on the way because you are Russian and, you know, you, 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 you're you just going home to visit your family. Mm. Well, it turns out her family, her father was a KGB and then SVR officer, which maybe explains how um, she got recruited. Um, and um, she was able to operate, um, and I think in a really interesting way. And, and, and um, you know, often the kind of, you know, it's a lot of tabloid stories and pictures about her, but I actually think she was very interesting because, you know, particularly she was here in London and then she ends up in New York. And actually, very quickly, she moves in very interesting circles because she is meeting interesting people. She's able to, you know, she's dating lots of people. She's going to the right parties. She's meeting influential people. Um, You know, she's living the high life in London and Manhattan. Um, She's meeting people like in London, Boris Berezovsky, who was, you know, an arch critic of Putin, you know. And she's able to do all these things um, uh, um, under her true name. Uh, and all the time, or eventually, we don't know exactly when she's recruited, also working as what's called a special agent of the SVR. So Mm. she wasn't quite a recruited, trained officer in the way that um, Bezrukov and um, um, Vavilov or Heathfield and Foley were, but she was a kind of trained special agent um, um, as an illegal yeah, I remember there was one of the people, uh, one of the FBI agents who was uh, tasked with following Anna Chapman. Yeah, Anna Chapman was notoriously kind of bad at tradecraft, and um, there was one instant where she actually became quite good at tradecraft, and the FBI agent felt kind of proud of her. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, one of the FBI agents who I spoke to. Who, yeah, who who said that most of the time she's pretty sloppy, but the one time was actually when when you know, right at the end when she was about to be arrested, and she she gets she gets hold of a burner phone. And she buys one from a store, but she makes one terrible mistake, which is she drops the receipt on the of the phone with a phone number into the bin, the trash can in America. And uh, as a result, the FBI team who are trailing are able to pick it up, um, pick up the phone, and then get on to her and listen to her call to her father, which helps them know what she's going to be doing. So um, uh, there's a kind of very dramatic, you know, arrest process for Anna Chapman. Um, you know, which actually is, you know, after years of watching some of these illegals, nearly collapses, uh, well, not collapses, but nearly causes a kind of crisis. Um, and Anna Chapman is the one who's the most kind of complicated and difficult to arrest um, in New York in the, in the summer of 2010. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. During the late 1990s, the FBI managed to turn a Russian intelligence officer in America, and his name is Alexander Potiev. I hope I got the pronunciation yeah, right. Potiev, yeah. Potiev, sorry. <laughs> Alexander Pataev. Right. Um, can you tell us a bit about him um, and how he was recruited and why he was important? Yeah, so this is a kind of, in the book, one of the things that I try to dig deepest on because there's not much around um, Pataev, this officer, who is clearly the key to the FBI getting into the illegals program. And he um, 
he was a, um, a Russian intelligence officer who'd served in Afghanistan initially with the military and with special forces and then recruited into the KGB, then the SVR, uh, and then is posted to New York at the UN, uh, the mission to the United Nations in Manhattan. And in 1999, not long before he's due to return to Moscow, he is um, recruited in turn by the FBI and they um, pitch to him or he has a contact with them, which I go to a little bit in the book. Um, uh, as far as I could find out, it's quite, still quite a murky story, but I think I got some new details about that. Uh, and uh, he's recruited. But then crucially, he goes back to Moscow and um, he worked at the heart of the illegals directorate in the department which runs illegals um, specifically in the United States. So uh, the illegals directorate is Directorate S, Department 4 runs, of, of Directorate S runs them in the Americas. And he's working in the heart of that as deputy head, therefore has access to all the secrets of illegals um, who are working in the Americas. And he's run then jointly effectively by the CIA and uh, FBI um, for a decade. And for a decade is able to supply details about what the illegals are up to in the in the US and elsewhere. Yeah. And can you just tell us a little bit about some of the difficulties of running somebody like him based back in Russia? Because that's, that's not an easy task. No, it's not. Um, I mean, one of the things people said to me is recruiting an agent especially one like Pataev in Moscow is impossible or, or close to. Um, you could maybe recruit them in somewhere like New York as he, as he was, but then you can try and run them in Moscow. But even that is incredibly hard because face-to-face -face contact is difficult. If you're a CIA officer in the embassy in Moscow, you're followed all the time. So meeting them face-to-face -face is very, very hard. There's ways you can do it without meeting in person, electronic drops and things like that. But also, um, the advantage Pataev had was that he travelled because of his job supporting the illegals in the Americas who would travel to neighbouring countries, but also to Latin America and places. And so they were able to meet him abroad as well um, and um, to kind of have these meetings and, and, and uh, gather the intelligence from him. The FBI started uh, an operation which they named Ghost Stories, and this was following, following the large group of illegals. Um, who were discovered in America. Can you tell us a bit about ghost, the Ghost Stories investigation, the kind of the methods used, the scale of it and the length of the operation? Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing operation because it does last a decade, mm. basically. It's a decade-long counterintelligence investigation. It's one of the biggest that the FBI ever conducted. It's effectively started when Pataya goes back um, and um, very quickly they are able to understand what illegals are operating in the US. And uh, there's a group of them, uh, but it's wrong to think of them as all connected. So you've got um, different illegals in New York, in Washington, at times in Seattle, um, Boston, um, and um, uh, who the FBI is able to monitor. And the, and the great advantage they have is that they, because they have this source in Moscow, they're able to know who they are. They know when they're coming, when they're going. They are um, able to um, understand some of their contacts. Crucially as well, at one point, they work out a way of getting inside their communications thanks to a kind of break they get after the Murphy's apartment in New Jersey um, is entered into. So the FBI do things like um, go into their apartments while they're away. They bug the apartments. They, um, they wire them up sound. They're able then to search them. They find the secret communications tools, the 
you know, the encryption programs that the um, SPR is using to communicate between Moscow and the illegals, which allows them then to, to, to kind of monitor those communications and see who's being contacted. So uh, they have an amazing hold on that program for a decade um, of being able to kind of watch the steps of these Russian spies. And it's precisely because they have such a good vantage into the, their activities that they are able to just watch them and gather intelligence on how they work because they can be confident um, that they've kind of got them under control, that they're not going to do anything really, really damaging because they have their source in Moscow and they have this this um, visibility of what they're up to. Yeah. And in 2010, the FBI decided, well, uh, sort of felt they had to wrap up the operation. What challenges did they face in trying to do that? Well, this is a kind of remarkable bit of the story I mm. found, which was, you know, a decade they've been watching them, and then suddenly, in a hurry, it comes to the end. And, and one of the things I kind of learned and, and, and explored was that the reason it comes to an end, and you know, I kind of reveal is is, is because Pataev himself, the source in Moscow, feels he's under pressure and is worried that they are getting onto him in, in Russia, and so he feels he wants to get out. So if, without him there, they will not have the kind of visibility and confidence that they've got the illegals undercover. So. That forces their hand that they want to arrest them. Uh, they then um, have you know, been collecting evidence against them. Um, they're looking at the travel patterns of the illegals, and they notice that, for instance, Heathfield and one of his sons is going off to Russia in the summer of 2010. And so they suddenly think, well, we've got to kind of try and arrest before he goes. Uh, and then they have this huge and really complicated problem, which is exactly the moment where the the, the the arrest window is, is, is there when the illegals are there and when Pataev can be got out. Um, the Russian uh, then president, Dmitry Medvedev, is in the United States and North America for a, for a summit. And they basically, the White House goes, we're trying to reset relations with Russia. This is the period of the so-called reset. We do not want you to destroy that reset with this spy you know, caper. Uh, and so there is a almighty battle in June 2010 inside the White House over a couple of meetings of the top people in the intelligence community and the politicians and the law enforcement community and the diplomats about what to do about this. Um, and, you know, there are some people who say, look, do we have to do we have to arrest these illegals at all? You know, do we can we defer it? Can we, you know, they looking, you know, the the, the the, a, a lot of people for a way out mm. um, and um, the intelligence community say no you know we've got this source we've got to get him out there is a very tight time frame for that and so in the, in the end they come to a kind of um, uh, an agreement about how they're going to do it with with a, a coordinated arrest uh, the exfiltration or the, the escape of Pataev from Moscow in exactly the same weekend and then they plan that to to, to do it only when the Russian president has left North American airspace. So literally, the orders of the FBI are not to make an arrest until uh, Dmitry Medvedev has actually left airspace. And this becomes a kind of very tense final weekend in which you have all these moving parts of, you know, Pataevic fleeing Russia, uh, the illegals being under surveillance, and they're trying to entrap Anna Chapman in a, in, a, in a false flag operation. And you have the Russian president in town or in, um, in North America, uh, the US and then Canada, all at the same weekend trying to coordinate it. So it's a kind of crazy 
end to that uh, decade-long investigation. Yeah, no, insane. So just to cut a very long story short, so obviously this leads to the arrest of the illegals. Um, and in the end, the American government decide to do a sort of old-fashioned spy swap to mm. kind of mitigate the kind of diplomatic damage from this. Can you tell us a bit about this sort of spy swap and what the Americans kind of got out of the deal? Well, I think it's such an interesting issue. And, I, and this is actually the starting point for the book for me was I remember the reporting on this spy mm. swap and thinking, this is a bit weird, you know. Uh, the whole thing felt a bit like a Cold War throwback having spy swaps. But actually, it was much more interesting than I thought because it was a kind of window into this Russian intelligence program and into this intelligence battle that had been going on even before the end of the Cold War, through it, through the Cold War, through its closure. And you suddenly saw some of these these issues suddenly in appear in Vienna Airport and kind of pop up and then disappear again. But it was a way of understanding those. But basically, the 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 what's interesting is on the one hand, people say, well. America arrested 10, and they only got four back for those 10. And, and so hang on a sec, was this a bad swap? But actually, it, it, quite the opposite, because basically the Russians were, were in a terrible situation because they've had 10 of their own intelligence officers, illegals, the pride of their intelligence service, arrested in America. They've got to get them out. They can't, because they don't have diplomatic immunity, they're illegals. Um, they're going to languish in jail if they don't get them out. And because they're supposed to be heroes, they've got to be got out. So the Americans have the upper hand. And what they ask for are four people in Russian prison who are Russians accused of espionage for the West. Now, um, this is these are people who, in Russia's eyes, are traitors and who who they absolutely do not want to let out. And they are forced to let those out. Uh, and so the point about the trade is it's not so much 10 for four, it's Russians for Russians. Um, you know, 10 Russians one way are let go. But in return, four people are swapped out from Russian jails um, um, who otherwise would have still been in there to go to the US and to go to the UK. Uh, uh, and so it's a, it, it's a moment for one of the things I, I found interesting was Putin himself was very angry about this. He was very angry about the illegal's arrest. He found it a humiliation that his intelligence officers had been caught, they'd been watched, they'd been arrested. Uh, now he was being forced to swap people seen as, as traitors for them. Um, this, was, this was something which caused deep anger in Moscow and humiliation. And as I said, I don't think that was widely understood at the time in the outside world, where it was just seen as this kind of strange Cold War throwback. Yeah. No, it's insane. And one of the assets, one of the American assets who was being swapped was allegedly warned to watch out by the, the senior Russian intelligence officer sort of running the swap. Can you sort of tell us about the significance of that warning, especially with the Skripal poisoning in 2018? Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, watch out was, 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 was what, you know, the, the, the FSB, the Russian security service officer, says to one of them. And it is that sense. It goes to the fact that, you know, that Russian security officer had spent years tracking down the that person and some of the others and then they're being forced to, to to release them so there was this sense of kind of grievance in russia there is this cult of the spy and hatred for traitors which have been developed there and i think if you understand that you understand why eight years later sergey skripal was poisoned in salisbury um, um, you know, someone most people here had never heard of. 
um, um, but because of the way they viewed that swap and having been forced into it, how they viewed Skripal, um, that 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 draws a very clear line between Vienna and eight years later. Salzburg. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it was definitely a foreshadowing, wasn't it? Um, well, look, Gordon, I think we're probably getting close to need to wrap up for you, aren't we? Um, got a few more minutes. Got a few more minutes. Well, well is there anything? Um, is there anything that we haven't discussed uh, about this topic that's important to you that you'd like to to mention? Um, I just think it's 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 there's a lot of focus on spies, but I think understanding the Russian intelligence program and the illegals and how they've used them gives you an insight into Putin himself and into Russia, which I think is very important and into how Russia sees itself. I also think if you take this kind of broad narrative, and I've tried to take a kind of 30-year narrative at least, you can also see how Russia has evolved in its espionage. And on the one hand, I think it's been patient and persistent, where the West has sometimes been short-term and wavered. But at the same time, Russia has innovated and it's shifted from, the, if you like, the old-fashioned illegals to the true name illegals. But then in the last decade since that spy swap has again innovated in terms of using online techniques, using what I call cyber illegals, creating false identities online to engage with and manipulate America and Western countries. And I think understanding that sweep is important to have a kind of um, a realistic understanding of Russian espionage and not one which is seeing them as, you know, 10 feet tall and amazing, but nor as kind of figures of thumb or sloppy. They're, it's something much more complicated than that. And I mm. think having that sweep gives you a feel for what Russia is like under Vladimir Putin. And, you know, given that he looks like he's going to be in power for some time, what it will be like in the future as well. Yeah. Now, I remember, was it back in the... I think it was the early 2000s, there was an interview of Oleg Gordievsky and he was asked about mm. what do you think about the future of Russia under Putin because um, there was a time where it seemed to be a positive thing and he was quite negative about it all. Um, and I don't think he was necessarily wrong, was he? <laughs> well, I think I think, I think think it, it's just important to have a kind of clear-headed view of Russia. Mm. I think that's the, that's the thing, a clear-headed mm. view about about what it is and what it's willing to do and and to understand that it, it has changed in some ways. I think one of our, our mistakes has been to not understand always those changes. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, Gordon, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work? Well, they can find out. Um, um, I, I'm, you can follow me on Twitter at Gordon Carrera. You can see some of my journalism if you look it up. And you can also find the book Russians Among Us, which gives you a lot more on the things we've been talking about. Fantastic. Thank you, Gordon. A pleasure. Like what we're doing? Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. For more information about the podcast, visit our website at drycleanercast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.